this week, will natural gas really help ease carbon dioxide levels? When we looked at it, we did not see uh, a significant reduction in um, greenhouse gas emissions. And watching Alzheimer's happen in a dish. The big breakthrough is simply saying this needs to be done in a, uh, a matrix that's more like the brain, which is a gelatinous matrix, not a liquid matrix. Plus research mashups, the trend for cross-disciplinary research. This is the Nature Podcast for October the 16th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Mush. Imagine standing on one side of a ravine, surrounded by coal and oil-fired power plants, getting their smog on. On the other side of the ravine is the future, a world of clean, green and renewable energy sources. But how do we get there? We're going to need a bridge. And many energy experts suggest we build it out of gas. Doesn't sound structurally ideal, but chill out, it's a metaphor. What they mean is natural gas is a useful interim solution while we transition from dirty to clean energy. Techniques like fracking force high-pressure jets of fluid into the earth, fracturing it and allowing stored gas out, and they've opened up huge stocks of fuel. This gas is regarded as a greener fossil fuel than its dirty cousins like coal. The idea is that switching to burning gas may keep carbon levels down until carbon-free technologies become a reality. But does choosing the lesser of two evils really make sense? Researchers at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have been scrutinising the gas bridge idea and looking for cracks. Noah Baker spoke to two of the team, Haywan McJohn and Jay Edmonds. Jay first. Not all fossil fuels are created equal. Natural gas, among all the fossil fuels, has the lowest carbon emission per unit of energy of any fossil fuel. And so it's just that simple. So it's just that simple, but you wanted to check anyway, just in case. And so you've built some models to try to understand how using more of this natural gas might change things in the future. And Haywon, what what have you discovered in this process? Uh, So the main idea is to model this in a fully integrated system. So it includes energy system, the economic system, and the climate system. When you put them all together and process uh, high gas and low gas, basically, scenario, and then we observe the difference, when we looked at it, we did not see uh, a significant reduction in um, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that seems counterintuitive to me, because if you're burning a fuel that doesn't release as much CO2, then you'd have thought that the CO2 emissions would go down. Why, in your models, did that not happen? The first part is what everyone was expecting, basically. That is um, gas displacing coal, because there's a lot of gas at lower costs. It would displace coal, and that would reduce emissions. But at the same time... Because it's working in the market system, if it has lower costs, it would not only displace coal, but it would also displace nuclear or renewables uh, like wind. So that's the substitution effect. And overall, it looks like the substitution effect would reduce the emissions. But the second part of the effect is if you have lower cost fuel um, in the market, people would simply use more. This is the, the first observation in economics, basically. So if you use more, it would increase emissions at the same time. So those are the two effects, and sometimes they're offsetting each other. And when they offset each other, the total effect on long-term emissions is very small. 
What about on a smaller scale? You know, you, you talk about in global scale, there, there are these issues, but in moderation, could natural gas be a solution or certainly help in our fight against anthropogenic climate change? Yes. Whenever it is being used to substitute for a higher emission fossil fuel, then that substitution results in a reduction of CO2 emissions. And so the, the really the key finding of our study that if you just let the market play out without any supporting policies and measures that you don't get a net reduction could in fact be tempered by the introduction of supporting policies and measures. In the past, climate scientists have often been slightly um, frustrated by how um, little of the work that they produce isn't actually translated into policy. How likely is it that these um, these policies that you suggest are so necessary will actually make it into government? Well, that's, that's uh, certainly beyond the scope of the study. Um, and it's something that I don't know how to predict. And I think I would leave that to uh, the people who are more knowledgeable about the policy formulation process. <laughs> So does that mean that you're passing the baton on to the politicians now? Well, there are two, two batons uh, that can be passed. One of them is making things in the real world happen, and that really is something that, that's why we have governments. But the other is the research question, and that is which policies and measures are most effective in taking advantage of this change in technology that has begun to emerge in the, in, in the realm of natural gas. And that's something that we plan to go forward to explore. Uh, we haven't done it yet. It's not in this paper. This paper is, in fact, limited to the absence of, of policies and measures. But certainly that's a direction that the research uh, needs to go, and we plan to take it. That was Jay Edmonds and before him, Haywan McJohn talking to Noah Baker. And what do you think? Should we keep building the gas bridge? Let us know on Twitter at Nature Podcast or via email on podcast at nature.com. Still to come, interior design tips from Finches and a list of thirsty cities. But first, here's Jeff, who's been breaking down barriers to find out what makes interdisciplinary science so important and so difficult. Ah, academia. A place to burrow ever deeper into the one question that bugs you most. Like, what is the exact structure of this specific hormone of that particular gland in my favourite species of aphid? But more and more researchers, rather than just digging deeper, are trying to burrow sideways. Interdisciplinary research is becoming trendy. Researchers recognise that to answer some of the bigger questions facing the planet, narrowness has problems and that a healthy cross-fertilisation of ideas between fields could seed the bigger answers. But what really drives them and how can we measure their success? Nature tackles this question in its university special this week. Obviously every researcher is looking for innovative things to do and looking in the border space between subjects that haven't collaborated in the past is a pretty obvious way of potentially discovering new things. That's Colin Blakemore. He's no stranger to the border space between disciplines. He's currently Professor of Neuroscience and Philosophy in the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. 
I'm a neuroscientist, as you know, and I'm working in a philosophy institute, which is a major interdisciplinary leap. And I have this big grant from the AHRC, which is called Rethinking the Senses, which is specifically asking whether it's possible to put together the philosophy and the neuroscience of perception. Blakemore is one of a growing number of scientists receiving grants for specifically interdisciplinary work. Here's John Fishman, a senior editor at Scientific American, who's written about universities for this week's special issue. Colleges and universities have been making sounds about the value of cross-disciplinary research for 50 years, but within the last 20, it's really picked up some speed and people have started putting some money behind it. From within higher education itself, there is a recognition that to tackle problems like water shortages or the genesis of cancer, you need to bring together teams of people with specialised knowledge. Back to neuroscientist come philosopher Colin. Surely of all things, the all-complicated brain requires undisturbed focus before she'll give up her mysteries. Focus is a big buzzword. That was the buzzword of 20 years ago. Interdisciplinarity is the buzzword now, and they seem like polar opposites. Focus is really important for technical advance, for expertise, for getting really, really good at doing something. So there are different phases of science. Focus concentration is good when techniques are improving and developing. Interdisciplinarity potentially breaks new boundaries. No one has been merging their disciplines quite like Arizona State University in the US. Josh Fishman explains he profiled ASU in a feature this week. What they've done is they've created a multidisciplinary superstructure. A lot of cross-disciplinary institutes that bring together physical sciences and biological sciences, astronomy and geology, and they've created a bunch of other schools and institutes. This change at Arizona State began about 12 years ago under the vision of President Michael Crow. And it turns out that joining up disciplines was a good financial strategy. They have, over the years, been successful at accruing more funds from outside sources. I think that the funding bodies are more attracted to multidisciplinary research because they've been criticised for years for only financing narrow projects. Incrementalism is the big complaint. And what about the science itself? Has this cross-fertilisation led to sparky, creative, high-impact science? One crude measure can be publications. It's sort of the coin of the realm in scientific research. There, Arizona State has ramped up the overall number of its publications. But in terms of publications from Arizona State researchers that make it into the elite journals over the past 10 years, that number really hasn't changed relative to similar institutions. But just looking at publications is a pretty two-dimensional way of going about things. Colin has his own measure of success. The production of kinds of research and ideas that would not have happened without it. I mean, that has to be the criterion for all interdisciplinary research. Why bother to go through the hardship of forging new partnerships, and learning new techniques, reading a whole lot, new lot of literature, if all that you generate is things that would have happened anyway? So it's got to do some, you know, produce something that's novel because of the contribution of both sides of the partnership. That's, awful, that's asking for an awful lot, actually. 
And uh, I'm guessing by the look in your eyes that you have an example of some of this successful research in your in your department. Well, the experiment I'm doing at the moment has come directly out of talking to philosophers. It hasn't been done by neuroscientists, even though it could have been done 150 years ago, actually. And it is simply asking the question, what is going on in the brain when you have a visual experience and you know it's a visual experience as opposed to hearing a sound or a voice or whatever or feeling something touching your skin, these very distinct categories of sensory experience. And it's basically an Aristotelian question. It has to do with the individuation of the senses, as the philosophers talk about it. Why is vision different from hearing? And it's not a trivial question. Where is all this going? In 50 years, will all universities just be big melting pots? Josh Fishman again. I don't think so. Some universities are going to be these kinds of melting pots, and some are going to be more traditional. If you are a graduate student, you might have a choice. There might be kind of an ecosystem of universities that's a more diverse population rather than this monoculture that we have now. And a final thought from Colin. I think that one of the big impediments to successful interdisciplinary collaboration in universities is the commitment to teaching. Unfortunately, teaching is much more conventional and much more traditional than the researchers who are doing the teaching. So that's a paradox, I think, for energetic research-intensive universities to tackle. Their income stream is primarily coming from students locked to, in many cases, rather conservative curricula. Their researchers want to escape out of that and try risky collaborative interactions, which aren't yet reflected in teaching programmes. Neuroscientist and philosopher's friend Colin Blakemore there, and before him, Siam's Josh Fishman. Now it's time for some short, sharp science. It's the research highlights read by Noah Baker. Zebra finches aren't known for their interior design skills, but it turns out they can colour code their nests to blend in with their environments. These birds often appear to use camouflage, but they could just be lucky with what they find nearby. Working with captive finches, a team in Scotland decorated cages in fetching pastel pink, yellow, cream, mint or baby blue. They gave the birds paper strips in two of the colours, either matching or contrasting with their cages. The majority chose the colour that matched the decor, though a couple of birds were die-hard pink fans regardless. The results appear in The Orc, published by the American Ornithologists' Union. What do the cities of Dublin in Ireland and Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso have in common? They both top a predicted list of the world's thirstiest cities. A pair of Stanford-based scientists looked at how water needs might change in the next 25 years. They looked at urban population growth and agriculture in 70 cities across the world. The most vulnerable places depend on surface rivers or reservoirs for their water, but almost half the cities they looked at could be at risk of water shortages, and that's without factoring in climate change, which wasn't part of the model. That paper is in Environmental Research Letters. A man lies dead on the floor of a room, a gunshot wound through his left temple. Outside on the street, another man is running away from the house. Zoom into his pocket. He's hiding a gun. Looks like an open and shut case. But is the man with the gun really the murderer? It's only a hypothesis until more evidence can be found. And this is the situation without Simon's disease. 
scientists know the prime suspects. In the brains of Alzheimer's patients, there are these build-ups, these plaques of a protein called amyloid beta. They also know that later on in the disease, there are spaghetti-like tangles of another protein called tau within the neurons. This could be what causes the cells to die. But linking one to the other is not easy. In mice with Alzheimer's genes, for instance, you get amyloid beta, but no tangles. Similarly in human cells in a Petri dish. But mice aren't humans, and Petri dishes aren't much like brains. This week, a team from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, report a more brain-like testbed and some compelling evidence for the amyloid beta case. I spoke to team members Do Yun Kim and Rudy Tanzi. Rudy first. Alzheimer's disease clinically is characterised by catastrophic cognitive impairment, meaning loss of memory, judgment, reasoning, uh, the ability to learn, especially short-term memory. And um, you know, over the years, um, we've learned from genetics that the deposition of beta amyloid uh, is involved in the brain. Then there's this black box, somehow amyloid's causing tangles. And uh, our new study would say, first of all, yes, amyloid does cause tangles, and it's sufficient to do so. Um, and that had not been shown before, because in mice, when you make amyloid in mice with Alzheimer's mutations, they don't get tangles. People have been studying Alzheimer's, as you mentioned, in, um, in cultures, in, in dishes, in mice. Um, so what, what was missing from those approaches? What did you try and uh, correct here? Well, to the credit of my colleague, Dr. Kim, uh, I think the realization was the brain is not made of liquid. <laughs> you know, the brain is gel. The brain is three pounds of gelatinous material. So, the, the, you know, it's simple. But basically the idea was let's do it in a gel, 3D gel matrix so the, uh, uh, the amyloid beta protein doesn't diffuse so much. It's, it's allowed, like, in the brain to sit in a gel and slowly aggregate. And that's what it took. The big breakthrough was simply saying this needs to be done in a, uh, a matrix that's more like the brain, which is a gelatinous matrix, not a liquid matrix. And what were the ingredients, um, Yun King? I'll ask you, uh, given that it's your model. What sort of ingredients did you need for this recipe, this kind of 3D model that you built? Oh, actually, it's quite surprisingly easy. So all you need is just uh, make sure that we have right concentration of the 3D matrix gels and then put it onto the right dishes. And then they just make a gels. And then when the gels form, cells are actually kind of stuck in the three-dimensional position and they start differentiating. So you're building little tiny segments of 3D brain. Yes, exactly. Do you find it a bit strange that it didn't ever work in 2D culture, that it wasn't very easy to get the amyloid beta to have this effect on the tangles? So that's not very strange to us because the idea is that, you know, if you're going to the 2D culture, generally there's a huge amount of the media volumes and then there's a very thin layer in the bottom. So, so what 3D culture does is actually their gel system actually contains high A-beta concentration, which can induce some kind of the aggregation. And um, Rudy, maybe, maybe I'll come back to you um, to ask, you know, people are already developing and testing potential drugs that combat amyloid beta, and even combat tau, the tangles of this tau protein. So what difference do you think it will make to have this, this model now to work from? We never had a model of actual Alzheimer's disease where amyloid leads to tangles. But now that problem's been solved. This means that when you want to do drug screening, and let's say you want to find drugs that stop amyloid and thus tangles, we also showed you can find drugs that allow the amyloid to form 
yet still stop the tangles. So you could actually dissect those two events and you know, disentangle them. So this means that for screening compounds, um, it can be done 10 times faster because you can get answers from these cultures in about three months. And it can be done at literally, you know, probably less than a tenth of the price of trying to do all these compounds in mice. And we can see whether existing drugs that are already safe post-phase 1 or approved might have an effect on amyloid and or tangles, and that's something we are currently planning to do. I think one of, another advantage of this system is that like, we go for the combination therapies, like we are blocking A-beta and tau tangled together, and then maybe this is the right system to tackle like, what is the right combination, right compound. And even you can later, maybe we can see that early stage of disease and late stage of disease in our models. And that means you could test drugs that might help people with very early stage Alzheimer's before they start to develop all these ter- terrible cognitive symptoms. That, that's right. I think this system will lend itself mostly to early-stage drugs and preventative drugs, given that amyloid entangles and amyloid induction of tangles are early events in the disease. That's why it's important next to get neuroinflammation incorporated, because in a patient with full-blown disease, you know, there's so much neuronal cell death due to tangles um, um, that, you know, inflammation is playing a major role in killing many more neurons. So we have to incorporate that into a 3D system as well, and then we'll have the full gamut. And one very short final question. Uh, you're both interested in Alzheimer's, obviously, uh, but this 3D model, it strikes me, could be useful for people studying other brain disorders. Yes, that's the, what we are very interested in. I think uh, we are really excited to collaborate with other DGs. That was Du Yun Kim and before him Rudy Tanzi, both at Harvard Medical School. And by the way, Rudy is a musician as well as a scientist and is currently collaborating with Joe Perry of Aerosmith on a song for Alzheimer's awareness called Remember Me. Fun fact. News time now, and I'm joined in the studio by my favourite news reporter. It's Richard Van Norden. Hi there. Well, hello, Joe. There's a common thread, isn't there, to all the stories we're going to talk about today. And I think it's just that they're all really cool experiments. We've picked really difficult, intriguing experiments. There seems to be a run of them in the news this week. So I'm going to explain each one and say why it's so interesting. Okay, so the first one then is the news that scientists have mimicked hawking radiation in a lab. First of all, Stephen Hawking has his own radiation. Stephen Hawking, 40 years ago, said that black holes are not totally black. In fact, they emit a small amount of radiation. And this raised this question of whether information might somehow escape the black hole encoded within this radiation. And that's led to a rich thread of questions which still haven't been resolved even now. But is it possible that Hawking's theory could actually be observed, that we could see radiation escaping a black hole? Well, no one's managed to do this yet. But in an experiment that was published in Nature Physics last week, some researchers have come closer than ever before to creating a kind of lab-scale imitation of what this might look like. So they couldn't actually see them from a real black hole. They decided to make their own black hole in a lab. Is that as dangerous as it sounds? No, it's boringly safe. The analogue in the laboratory is with sound waves, sound particles, escaping or being sucked in 
to a, a faster moving fluid of atoms. This fluid is the collection of atoms chilled to less than one billionth of a degree above absolute zero. This is called a Bose-Einstein condensate, and at this temperature, the atoms become like a single fluid quantum object can be very easily manipulated with lasers. This all sounds horrifically complicated, but in fact, Bose-Einstein condensates are now just standard fare in physics. So the clever bit is that the researchers, who I should say Jeff Steinhauer at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa, managed to see that pairs of sound waves were kind of popping in and out of existence in this fluid and the theory goes now then that if this does reflect uh, Hawking radiation, that there are some fairly profound questions about gravity and quantum mechanics that we can now answer. Hopefully this experiment could be a way to ask questions about quantum mechanics, gravity and information theory just in the laboratory using a Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, in practice, some researchers are rather sceptical that this system, clever as it is, actually exactly mimics what Hawking radiation is doing. But it is kind of neat. It's it's a really nice sort of simulation of what we might expect to see at a black hole, and it's the closest anyone has come to trying to mimic Hawking radiation in the lab. Well, Hawking radiation sounds pretty hard to find. Uh, so is a segue between that story and this next one. Awesome experiment number two, checking whether cichlid fish get angry with other cichlid fish looking back at them in a mirror. Why are we putting them through this? Well, checking what fish do when they look at themselves in a mirror is actually a really important question for animal behavioural studies. The idea is that if an animal sees itself in a mirror, it will react as if it's encountering a rival. So you can kind of use that as a shortcut for studying an aggression response. But is that the case for all fish? Well, Robert Elwood at Queen's University, Belfast, UK, says many mirror studies might be flawed. OK, so they're basically comparing the response of these cichlid fish to other fish as compared to their own reflection. Yeah, what Elwood suggests is that fish looking in a mirror know they're looking in a mirror somehow and don't react in the same way as if they were just meeting one of their own kind and being aggressive which would be important because it would mean that a lot of studies done with mirrors uh, to test aggression responses would be flawed. So hang on, does this mean that the fish actually know that they're looking in a mirror? That is what Elwood thinks, but it's not like the fish is necessarily recognising itself. It's just that the fish senses it's in a different situation when it's looking at itself in a mirror than it is if it is seeing another of its species in real life. And that might not be anything profound, it might just be that that when these particular species of fish are aggressive, they turn their right sides to each other and end up head to tail. And you can't actually do that if you're looking at yourself in a mirror. Is this the end then of mirrors in behavioural studies? The conclusion is you basically have to do this for every type of animal you are studying to see if the behaviour is the same. And finally, Richard, do you yourself get angry when you look at your reflection in the mirror? No, Jeff, I, I don't get angry when I look at myself in the mirror. But the question really is, what would happen if I met my doppelganger? And I think I would be aggressive, probably quite like these cichlid fish. Right. Well, I suppose behavioural scientists will be taking a good look at themselves after this well-needed moment's reflection. Thank you. So from calm and controlled fish to controlled fishing in our third and final awesome experiment, penguins on Robin Island. 
This is an example of how it's really difficult to do a really good controlled ecological experiment. Robben Island, very famous as the place where Nelson Mandela spent 18 years in prison, but it's also uh, very controversial because it has African penguins on it. And African penguins are really in trouble, and they've had a 65% decline in the last 10 years. We don't know why, but one theory is uh, the anchovies and the sardines that they rely on to eat are being fished by us. So in 2008, uh, South Africa began a very unusual experiment with two pairs of islands, Robben Island and Dassin Islands off the west coast and St Crocs and Bird Islands off the south coast. And the idea was to stop fishing on one of these islands, but not the other, in each pair, a controlled experiment. And that experiment is done now. Do we have a verdict? Well, that experiment is done. And in the south pair of islands, yes, stopping fishing helped the penguins, but in Robben Island and in Dassin Island, no clear pattern has emerged. And now the question is, should we continue to stop fishing on Robben Island? Some people say, look, we need more time. Natural variations in the abundance of sardines and anchovies is going to swamp the signal. But some scientists say, let's stop this experiment. It's not telling us anything and we're just damaging the livelihoods of people in the fishing industry. And to make it even more complicated, uh, there's another problem. Many sardines uh, in the area are failing to reach maturity and the, the whole distribution of where these fish are is shifting eastwards. So maybe the penguins aren't doing so well because they're just a fewer fish around. Basically, this is saying this is extremely difficult to do what seems like a perfect controlled experiment in a real, real ecological context. And do the results of this study have wider reaching implications for fisheries around the world or is it just in relation to these African penguins? No, the implications are for fisheries worldwide. Anywhere where you have a fishery, where there's a predator like a seabird or a seal or a dolphin and you're worried that by fishing you're removing their prey... And these experiments could definitely inform that. And there's a workshop going on right now just to evaluate the evidence. And in December, we should learn whether we're going to carry on with the experiment or just give it up as a lost cause. OK, thanks as always, Richard. And if you would like to read more about any of those stories, go to nature.com slash news. And there's more wit and wisdom from Richard and from reporters Dan Cressy and Ewan Calloway in this month's Back Chat. That should have arrived on your podcast feed by now, or you'll find it on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh.